If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, in their new book, Underserved, my guests present a tangible blueprint for conservatives who understand the need for a new and viable political plan of action, one that addresses the needs of the underserved communities that make up these United States of America. Relying on the concept of the party of Lincoln and the conservative principles set forth over centuries by the movement's most recognized thought leaders, Underserved examines President Lincoln's intentions for Reconstruction, President Grant's aims to implement that vision, and Frederick Douglass's influence on both men in the process. From education and workforce development to criminal justice reform and health care disparities, Underserved makes a bold statement about what is necessary to see a change in the current state of affairs and presents a realistic action plan to make it happen. Joining me today are the authors of Underserved, Jerron Smith and Chris Pilkerton. Together, they worked on some of the Trump administration's most powerful and innovative policy wins for underserved communities, including establishing permanent funding for historically black colleges and universities, instituting opportunity zones, and passing the First Step Act, all of which are discussed in their new book. Jaron and Chris, thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thanks for having me, Mr. Speaker. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Well, you know, it's interesting. You guys come together from pretty different backgrounds. Let's take a minute and talk about both of them. Jaron, why don't you describe your own background and how you ended up where you are today? 
Sure. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, born and raised. I was born on the east side of Cleveland to a single parent household by my father. I did have the blessing of having both of my parents raise me. It's just that I spent my time with my mother on the weekends and my dad had me during the week. The big difference maker for me was my dad sent me to a Catholic school to get an education. And with that education, I was able to kind of use that in sports to be one of the first people in my family to go to college, which brought me here to Washington, D.C., where I attended Howard University. While at Howard, having grown up a Democrat and seeing Al Gore lose his election against President Bush, I got more curious about the Republican Party. And in doing so, I got an opportunity to work for Congressman J.C. Watts. And at the end of the summer, after working for him, I decided to become a Republican. And from that moment, I got opportunities to work with a number of other members, including Vice President Pence, Senator Tim Scott, Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise. And then I did some advocacy work for Americans for Prosperity before being recruited to the Trump White House to manage his urban affairs and revitalization policy. And it was in that position that I was able to kind of do some amazing work on behalf of the president around criminal justice reform, opportunity zones, and HBCUs. Yeah, I mean, it did strike me at the time that President Trump was doing a great deal more to improve the lives of poor Americans and the lives of poor neighborhoods than anybody in the news media wanted to give him credit for. And you were one of the driving forces in doing that. But Chris, your experience was really different from Gerard's. What about your background? I grew up in the D.C. area. I went to Gonzaga High School just down the block from the Capitol. So as I tell people, you know, the Jesuits got me early and then I continued to go to a Jesuit college, Fairfield University. And the motto of the Jesuits really is men for others. And so components of that were always part of my professional development and my professional interest with service. So I went on to law school and my first job out of law school, I was a prosecutor in Manhattan in the district attorney's office there continued to work in government at the Securities and Exchange Commission, and then went into the private sector. And when I had the opportunity to rejoin government, it was at the Small Business Administration working for Linda McMahon. And that was just a tremendous opportunity. It was her general counsel. Working for Administrator McMahon was an honor, and I learned so much about leadership from her. And when it comes to the underserved communities, her heart and how we could really lift up this country by really lifting up small business and being as supportive as possible. When she stepped down, I took over the acting administrator role for approximately a year. And in that work, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with folks over at the White House, including Jaron. And in particular, one of the efforts that Jaron spearheaded under the leadership of Secretary Carson and the direction of the president was the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council. And so while I was acting administrator, I worked with Jaron on a number of the issues that he mentioned and then joined the White House in March of 2020 after the new SBA administrator had been confirmed. And that's really where my journey with Jaron began and where all the work that we did together is accounted for in the book. And we began to discuss these things after we left the administration and really just saw so many lines of connection between the work of Lincoln and Reconstruction, which ultimately led to the book. I'm very curious. Would you say that your background 
Chris, that you were sort of naturally a Republican? I mean, was your family Republican or what was your journey? Yeah, we were. So I grew up in Montgomery County in Maryland. You may remember Connie Morella was the congresswoman there. And so my family was Republican. My grandfather grew up in Southern Maryland, and he ended up being the first member of our family to go to college, grew up on a farm out there. And for me, it was always really interesting because he came in, got an accounting degree and a law degree, and then was interested in coming back and actually running for Congress to help those communities, particularly the Chesapeake Bay community where he was from and actually where I live now. When I was in college, I ran for town council and so was actually elected as a Republican back in 1993. So although I hadn't worked on the Hill or had those experiences, I was this sort of Republican, but with this service mode of the Jesuits. And I think that's been illustrated in a lot of the work that I've recently been able to do and particularly working with Jaron. Now, by contrast, Jaron, you really came out of a Democratic background. And I would have thought going to Howard would sort of lock you in. But in fact, if I understand it correctly, it's at Howard University that you become a Republican. What happened? How did that occur? One thing I loved about the university, they had this mantra around pursuit of truth. As one of their models is truth and service. And for me, when I went to college, my goal was initially to get a finance degree because I saw that in the community I grew up in, there weren't a lot of black owned stores or businesses that at least that I knew about. And so I wanted to help galvanize more capital in low-income parts of Cleveland, Ohio. And I could do that through maybe owning a bank. But it was in learning about economics and also my high school studies at my Catholic school around the transcendentalists and Ralph Emerson, all of these kind of philosophers. It never occurred to me that they were more right of center and kind of undergirded the Republican Revolution. And so when I went to college and started talking about ideas it made me very curious to learn more about Republicans, even though traditionally in black neighborhoods, you're taught that Republicans are for the rich and they're racist. And so vote for Democrats, they'll at least do something for you. It may not give you much, but they'll give you a little bit. And I entertained that notion. Of course, my first year at Howard was the Bush-Gore election. And I voted for Al Gore, but two things made me more curious. One, I saw Al Gore speak at Howard, and he sounded like a Baptist preacher, came out as, I don't know, not inauthentic. You know, I was kind of shocked that he kind of changed the way he, his speech pattern because he was speaking to a black audience. But I still voted for him. But at 18, when I saw that he lost his own state, it made me curious, you know, how could you run for president and lose your own state? So when I had an opportunity to meet a friend of my football coach, a guy named Marcus Sakowitz, and we had lunch and he told me what he did. You know, I didn't know much about Washington or lobbyists or anything like that. But we had a whole conversation about politics and I was curious to learn more about Republicans. And he was like, I have a great opportunity for you maybe to work for Congressman J.C. Watts. And that one summer working for J.C. Watts, he had a deputy chief of staff named Elroy Saylor, 
who went to Morehouse is from Detroit and he had me do poverty statistics because I was really focused on how can we empower poor communities. And he showed me that despite presidencies, some of the communities like the one I grew up in, the poverty or the mobility statistics stayed the same in between Republican and Democratic presidents. And so learning that like Republicans at J.C. Watts cared about the poor and that all the Republicans I met that summer weren't racist and they actually aligned more with me on individualism. And I didn't even believe, I didn't even know this, but I've always believed the limited government. I didn't know that's a Republican Party platform. <laughs> but I got to learn all that that summer and then I decided that we needed more representation in our party, in the Republican Party, from people like me who grew up in an urban area from a minority community. And I used to joke to all of my Howard friends when they said, man, how did you become a Republican? I was like, well, you know, if a Republican president happens to become president, our community still need people to talk to him, advise him about the issues that's happening in our community. Little as I know, I basically kind of charted out my path 20 years before I, I actually did it. But that's how it happened. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign 
to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order March to the Majority right now at gingrich360.com slash book, and it'll be shipped directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. Go to gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com slash book. Now, the two of you end up at the White House and you end up working together. And you were really focused a lot both on the response to COVID, but also in trying to help people break out. What was it like to work in the Trump White House? Well, I can answer that one. I was amazed about the mixture of people. You know, when we first started, you had individuals who never worked in politics, who had mostly a business background. You had individuals that were a part of the conservative movement that I was a part of. Some people call it the Tea Party movement that happened in the early 2000s. And then you had individuals who had worked in like the Bush administration who had more establishment or moderate leadings. And in having that type of diversity, we had very great processes called public PCCs. They're basically policy coordinating councils where you can debate an issue. And depending on if you're able to get agreement, you would either A, advance it up to more senior leadership to help make a decision. If senior leadership can't make a decision, then ultimately the president would make the decision. But that process, to me, created an environment of like great policy solutions. And that's what you saw come out of the Trump administration. A lot of people who had dedicated their life to service, getting the real opportunity to kind of promote ideas. And the way that the Trump administration worked is they welcomed really good ideas that would move the country forward. And so we were able to kind of do things that were innovative, but we also were very intentional. Like President Trump ran on reforming NAFTA. So he had USMCA, you know, he ran on helping forgotten communities. And so all the things that we did on the American worker to criminal justice reform to other things like Opportunity Zones were all about forgotten communities. And so I really enjoyed working there just because it was an environment that really championed those who produce outcomes. And for me, I like a merit-based system because it gives me all the energy in the world to just work and keep trying to move the ball forward. So, Chris, what was your experience like? You'd been over at the Small Business Administration, so you'd seen a more traditional government bureaucracy, but now you find yourself sort of at the center of decision-making in the White House. What was that transition like? So my transition was interesting because I had been at the White House quite a bit once I took over the role as the acting administrator. So I went from being general counsel to an agency to attending you know, cabinet meetings on a very frequent basis. And the insights that I received from those meetings and then the people that I met at the White House really illustrated sort of the heart of the administration. And I think that's something that the media doesn't focus on. But the heart of the administration was done with, in conservative ways, in efficient ways, 
I mean, I, you know, just remember hearing the president talking about, you know, the importance of the homelessness crisis and working on those issues and caring about those issues, but then also caring about small business and then caring about workers. But it wasn't just talking about it. It was, all right, how do we start to develop these public-private partnerships, do so in a very, you know, conservative free market fashion? And Jerron alluded to some of those things. He alluded to the Pledge to the American Worker. Pledge of the American Worker didn't cost America any money. What the president did was bring in all of these companies, and these companies put together or already had existing training programs and identified opportunities for folks to work. And working with Ivanka Trump and others, he ended up getting up to about 16 million jobs being available through this program. And so when you look at things like the Department of Labor in, in WIOA, he was looking at efficiencies and how do we do this? These impacts really were felt across the country. It was a tremendous opportunity to work inside a White House. I joke around with folks that my first interaction with the White House was, I'm 50 years old, and in 1980, I sent a letter to President Reagan after listening to the State of the Union asking for an invitation to the White House. And I didn't get one, but I did get one back in 2020. And wow, was it really an amazing experience. So it took 40 years for your letter <laughs> to finally get you the job, right? It did. <laughs> It did, but it was well worth the wait. <laughs> well, now, let me ask you something. I really haven't had a chance to ask anybody about this. You guys are both working on a very positive plan. You're trying to implement the president's vision. And all of a sudden, COVID comes along and changes just about everything. How did you guys reorient your focus to try to cope with the COVID disaster and the economy and the challenge of COVID as a public health problem? Well, it was a number of different things that happened up until when we had the shutdown. Chris and I had an initiative called Opportunity Now. And what we were doing was we were trying to organize around Opportunity Zones. Opportunity Zones allowed for us to create an executive order called the White House Opportunity Revitalization Council. And that executive order gave priority points for programs that go to underserved communities for economic development education and workforce, community safety and entrepreneurship, we're able to kind of prioritize funding for those different types of programs in opportunity zones. And so that gave us leverage through the council to create public-private partnerships. But what we needed was a ground-up approach. And so the council was going to work on this initiative that Chris was spearheading and I was advising on called Opportunity Now. And the focus was to actually go on the ground in 15 cities and have a convening where we brought state, federal, and local program managers for underserved communities alongside with philanthropists in the business communities to develop revitalization plans for their low-income communities. We were able only to do that in one city, which was Charlotte. And this happened in February, right before the shutdown. We had even planned to go to Atlanta, Detroit. We would have spent some time in Philadelphia. And then we had done some pre-planning there. But when the pandemic happened, happened almost overnight, you know, came into the office and someone who worked with me at HUD was like, hey, you know, they shut down a lot of the schools. You know, we may need to retrofit those schools for hospital capacity. 
And so I started kind of socializing that idea with Jared Kushner. And before I know it, I found myself very involved with helping create capacity in some of the early states that were having trouble, like New York, Louisiana. And then that sent me down a whole different avenue once the country was shut down of working specifically with FEMA and HHS to create infrastructure for pandemic preparedness. And I did that for about a month, maybe the whole month of March. By the time of April came around, and mind you, Chris has another side of the story because he's in the White House right now while I'm at FEMA. So we're kind of separate, but doing different roles. So he can probably tell you more about what his role was. But essentially, I got called back to the White House because we saw that the pandemic was really affecting underserved communities. And so I came up with the idea to take the initiative that we were working on with Secretary Carson with the revitalization and the Opportunity Now movement and harness all those resources towards the pandemic. And so when I came back and started to work with Chris, Chris got tasked with another important part, which was preparing, working with Congress and preparing the CARES Act. And Chris spent significant time negotiating PPP. But I'll let Chris kind of talk a little more about that. And then maybe we can go back and talk about the social unrest that then happened a month later as it relates to George Floyd. The Paycheck Protection Program, as everybody knows, was passed as part of the CARES Act and ultimately was decided to be run out of the Small Business Administration. And it ended up being a massive program and certainly a massive program for the SBA. The phrase that a lot of SBA folks say was, you know, 14 years of loans in 14 days that basically came out of the SBA. And the SBA is a small agency. And, you know, people think it's very bipartisan. And I think it is because, you know, small business ends up being a very bipartisan issue. But they were really the tip of the spear. And so when I came into the White House, I had the opportunity to work closely with some folks on the Hill, with the the National Economic Council and the great folks that were there and sort of across the board to say, all right, how do you get this massive program to kind of run through this agency? And so we continued on that with respect to PPP. And then a lot of people had different ideas about the CARES Act money. And when Jaron came back from his detail over at HHS, we started working really closely with the Opportunity and Revitalization Council. And Mr. Speaker, one of the most amazing things about that group was that not only was it you know, working under the direct direction of the president, it was made up of cabinet members. These weren't staffers. These weren't deputies. And they were going through their own agency's programs, finding where there were opportunities for us to look at their budgets, to look at their programs and use them more efficiently. And we literally, Jaron and I sat down with OMB and found old grants that hadn't been paid out and started finding pockets of money that were years old and saying, look, there's a way to kind of take this and use it in a really efficient and intentional fashion. And that really ended up kind of becoming a big part of the book based on some of the policy recommendations that we ultimately ended up making. I hadn't thought about it until the way you explained it. You all probably moved as rapidly as any federal bureaucracy in modern times. It's astonishing. What was the key to that? How were you able to do that? I think that we mobilized OMB 
first of all, you know, working in the White House, I argue that it takes you about a year to kind of learn the tricks of the trade on how to be able to get those agencies to kind of move forward because it's hard if you don't know what questions to ask. And OMB to me is an important part of the White House establishment because they help you learn what programming flexibilities are available in an agency. And so if you're trying to move an initiative, working, they can help you actualize it. They have people who work directly with those agencies on every specific program, and they know a lot of the history. And so by the time we were in year four, I had become really good at navigating the different agencies, but you only can navigate them to a certain extent. That's why one of our biggest recommendations is it needs to be drastic reform and audit of all the underserved programs because we spend a lot of money and these programs don't work together and they create barriers for the private sector. Some of them are probably outdated. Others need to be merged, but it is a hard thing to kind of have them work in concert, which is why you see a lot of money goes out, but you're not seeing that real return on investment in some of these communities. In fact, if you look at economic mobility, that issue has continued to rise. It's less economic mobile. As we go on through time, we've been trying to close that gap. But one of the key things that President Trump was working on was kind of closing that wage gap. We were able to kind of increase the wages for low-income people in a way that hadn't happened in about 30 or 40 years. And that's what we're up against. But certainly this whole experiment made me and Chris think about our Marshall Plan, for lack of a better word, with these low-income areas, which is why we got to start thinking about Lincoln and Reconstruction, because we keep punting this issue. But we have to kind of think about the future and how we want to give everyone the best chance at pursuing the American dream, because it's at our core belief that our greatest asset as a country is our people. And we want all people to have that access. But this is the tale of two cities and across the country, whether it's rural or urban. We want to help close that gap. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In your new book, Underserved, you really start by talking about Lincoln's vision of Reconstruction, which I think is a very interesting place to begin why did you all decide that was the right starting point? From my perspective, you got to start with where Lincoln started. He was born in a prairie. He was self-educated. And what he saw as really moving the country forward was opportunity. One of his first campaigns, he talked about this fictional city of Huron. In Huron, there was going to be a port city and there was going to be all of this trade and there was going to be opportunity for small businesses to develop and workers. And that's what he envisioned for the district he was running in. That was sort of a microcosm of what he envisioned for the country. Of course, you know, he had to address the inhumanity of slavery, but he always maintained a real practical economic view of what would happen once the peace was made. You look at things like the Morrill Land Act back in 1862, and obviously, Mr. Speaker, with your tremendous history professor background, you know, these are things that ultimately ended up helping communities all across the West and other areas to create these, you know, at the time, vocational schools. So that's really what he had envisioned for the entire country, for both the freedmen as well as poor white Southerners. And so it became this opportunity for all, which is really when you look at the program that John and I were talking about, Opportunity Now, that was the same idea. So in a sense, you're picking up where Lincoln was forced to leave off because he was killed. Do you think it would have made a significant difference if he'd survived? I think so. I mean, we see that because of that gap between Lincoln and Grant and Andrew Johnson's um, presidency also was the beginning of setting up the Jim Crow era. And a number of dominoes fell, which were failures of Reconstruction. You had a movement of Black people getting politically involved, but the Jim Crow era and, and poll taxes kind of changed that whole landscape. And so our thought process is that if Lincoln would have been successful, that would have got ahead of those issues that maybe held the South back from dealing with this post-integration piece. And so that's 
one of the things I think would have been helpful. The second piece is that economic opportunity is to me the North Star of America. Being able to take advantage of opportunity and empower oneself economically. This is why we think like financial literacy and things like that need to be taught in schools because it's in the DNA of being an American, being able to earn, being able to keep your potential and make some money off of it and grow a life for you and your family. We feel is that a whole number of individuals in the black community got left out of that process. And again, there was an attempt to galvanize economic empowerment through the Freedmen's Bank after Grant took office, but that failed. And so our thought process is that Lincoln probably would have been maybe a better manager with kind of getting that set up the right way that may have prevented some of the realities that end up happening, like Jim Crow and the lack of economic empowerment. President Lincoln was not a perfect man. His ideas evolved over time. And Frederick Douglass pushed him on a number of different areas. But one of the areas of research that we looked into, Douglass saw that Lincoln's development was as a rail splitter, splitting logs. And he understood that you needed to put the thin edge of the blade in first. And then, you know, you could kind of open up the opportunity. And so very few presidents have had the political skills of a Lincoln. And we think that based on what we've researched and how we've seen his vision, he would have been able to handle this and develop this opportunity for all. Certainly, when you look at President Johnson, he was something of an accidental president and certainly did not have the political skills nor the will that Lincoln would have had had he been able to complete Reconstruction. Yeah, I mean, you almost get the sense that Johnson is pro-Southern white and either and indifferent to whatever happens to African-Americans in the former Confederacy. And it's only when Grant comes in that you have a reversion to the sort of Lincoln vision. Recently, I've been very, very impressed. Brett Baer did a very interesting book on Grant and Reconstruction. I think I had not appreciated how deep the conflict was as the former slave owners tried to reimpose some form of control, what became ultimately segregation. And as the Republicans actually, up to using military force against the Ku Klux Klan, that Grant was really trying to find a way to move the system towards Lincoln's vision, but that the resistance was very, very deep. A big time. And that's what we talk about, those politics. It honestly continued to be a political football that got punted over the years. You'll see different administrations because of tough times make a grand movement to try to do something different. But ultimately, we never move close to kind of doing something that's bold to really move the needle on communities. I think a beautiful thing about history is that that also was the emergence of the Industrial Revolution. And a lot of economic benefits happened for underserved communities there. And that really kind of moved us into, you know, a huge economic power as a country. In many cases, especially as they got unionized in the 20th century, you know, some of those job opportunities was left out of the black community. And so not everyone had the opportunity to access that type of economic mobility through a good economic pay from those type of jobs. But yeah, certainly we think that if we would have had Lincoln, you know, we maybe have not had to deal with those segregation issues. I completely agree that President Cran was one of the 
the most underrated presidents for how he was able to navigate that time period. But I think just given what he was faced with and given sort of what we saw kind of tying back that reconstruction period to our time, Milton Friedman says that governments never learn, only people learn. And we did a lot of research on de Tocqueville and Burke and these underserved communities are part of the conservative philosophy. They all mention it. They all talk about it. But how do we translate it into this efficiency that we kind of came about seeing during COVID while we were in the White House? And so our policy goals really are to ensure that you take all these programs that have been around for so long, like Jaron was talking about, and get to their core. What's the goal? Use data, you know, use sort of private sector techniques and get out of that government mindset that you can just keep throwing money at a problem. It's all about results and holding people accountable. I really think what you all have done here is very important, not just for conservatives, but for any American who wants to figure out how do we get everybody moving in the same direction, have everybody have a chance to pursue happiness, have everybody be empowered to have better lives and a better sense of the future and a better sense that they can be in control of empowering themselves and having a chance to go out and to work hard. And I think the fact the two of you came together as a team is very, very helpful. Jaron and Chris, I want to thank you for joining me. I think it's fascinating what you're doing. As a historian, I think that your insights into Lincoln and Reconstruction and Frederick Douglass and the possibilities that were there and the possibilities that are still here today, combined with the experience you all had in harnessing government to actually do real things in real time during the COVID crisis, the word you use here, underserved, harnessing the principles of Lincoln's vision for Reconstruction for today's forgotten communities. I think that's exactly the right concept. And your book, Underserved, is now available at Amazon and bookstores everywhere. And I think it's a significant contribution to the policy debates of 24 and the policy actions of 2025. So thank you both for joining us and for sharing your experiences. Thanks so much, Mr. Speaker. We really appreciate those kind words. It really means a lot coming from you. So thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you to my guests, Jaron Smith and Chris Pilkerton. You can get a link to buy their new book, Underserved, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. 
I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.